the Oakdale Christian Centre podcast. This week, Rosa from the Church's Mission to the Jews visited us again to tell us all about the work that CMJ do. We thank Rosa for allowing us to record this session. Good to have Rosa with us. It's two years, Rosa, isn't it? Two years. And Nini, two years. Time goes quickly. Amen. Thank you, Rosa. Well, good evening, everyone. Lovely to be back with you again. I love coming to Wales. I do two big speaking tours in Wales every year, sometimes three or four weeks each, and then um, a couple of speaking tours in other areas of the country. I was interested in your choice of um, songs. I didn't know the first one, but I gather that you're a church that is expecting the king to return soon. I'm afraid I speak in many churches where it just hasn't crossed their mind. And I do think urgently that we need to be ready, so I'm pleased that, that you are prepared. And the last song, Scribe Greatness, uh, means quite a lot to me because uh, I was came to the Lord. I don't know exactly when. It was a process, probably uh, 37 to 40 years ago. But I was baptized 36 years ago next month and went to Lansdowne Baptist Church, where I still am. And uh, I don't know if I shared any of this last time, but my husband sadly wasn't a Christian. He was an alcoholic and he drank himself to death 15 years ago. But um, life was very difficult. It was a very abusive relationship. But right at the beginning, that was one of the first songs that was sung in my church. And, and I, you know, believed every word of it, and I still do, that however hard life was, God is faithful and just and good, and we can trust in him. But I'm here tonight to share with you about um, Jewish ministry because that's God's calling on my life. And as I'm sure I said last time, all my life God has brought Jewish people across my path. Um, Perhaps I'll begin where I usually finish (laughs) and tell you about um, a dear couple, I can't remember if I mentioned them to you before, Walter and Herta. Uh, They are Holocaust survivors. Um, They came over on kinder transport from Vienna at the beginning of the war in their early teens, separately, on their own, couldn't speak English or anything. But they met at some point in their teens, and they married when Hertha was 18. They're now 93 and 95, and they will have been married 75 years in November, and they love each other dearly. And I've been witnessing to them for perhaps 11 or 12 years, and they've heard the gospel. Um, They've been to Christian funerals and and other things as well, but they still haven't put their trust in the Lord. Um, And I really would ask your prayers specifically for them, because they really are in trouble at the moment. Last year, when Walter was 94, he was still going around the country speaking on the Holocaust in schools and so on because, of course, there won't very much longer be anyone that can do that firsthand. And uh, unfortunately, he got a chest infection last year and was rushed into hospital, and he told them he was allergic to penicillin, but he got two doses nevertheless, and ended up tomato-coloured from head to toe for a couple of weeks. He was in bed there, and uh, more or less lost the use of his legs because he was horizontal too long. 
he can sort of barely put one foot in front of the other on a zimmer. Um, and his son, their sons that live the other side of the country, um, put them in a Jewish care home, which is a, a good one. It's not posh, but it's caring, uh, where I visit them every week when I'm home. Um, just for a month, it was supposed to be in December. Um, but I don't think they ever intended it to be just a month. And they actually sold the house and all Walter's books um, and things without saying. I think they were afraid to tell him. But um, a few couple of months ago, I visited and Hertha was not too well and she, she was asleep that morning. So I spent a couple of hours with him and he'd fallen into a deep, deep depression, mainly because he, he wasn't sure if it was gone, but he thought probably the house and all his precious books had gone. And he was like this in his chair. He's just agitated in his body with the mental anguish. And I was very worried about him. And he said that he was suicidal, but you know, he wouldn't do it because of Hertha, and I, I didn't think he would. But while I was away on a speaking tour, um, I came back and found that he actually tried to hang himself in the shower, and she'd found him in time, but he was sectioned, and he was sent off to, um, uh, you know, an HS clinic a long way away in the country. Uh, I've recently been to Canada, and I'll tell you all about that in a minute, and while I was there, I came back and couldn't seem to get hold of them. And um, the home, of course, wouldn't tell me anything. They just said Hertha wasn't there. Walter, as I knew, was still in the clinic. And eventually I got him. He was so distressed, he wasn't very coherent. But he said she was in hospital, but didn't know why. But then some clues emerged about bones and femur. And I thought, oh, dear, she's had a fall. She's broken her femur. So although I just flown back overnight. I had no time to be jet-lagged because I was trying to trace which hospital and which ward she was and cut a long story short anyway. I was sort of all day and all evening and taking her charger in and this, that and the other. The next day I did 126 miles fetching water to see her and it's just wonderful to see them together for a couple of hours. They just kissed and kissed and told each other how much they loved each other and it was worth it all. Um, and Walter now is back in the home, but still very depressed. And Herta's not making much progress. She too has been horizontal too long. Um, and she's, you know, even her arms won't take her weight on a zimmer. So trouble is, if she's not, doesn't get on her feet, she can't go back to that because it's only a care home and not a nursing home. So please, please pray two big prayers that, um, in humanly speaking, that somehow or other they will be together for the rest of their lives um, somewhere, uh, that the sons will make that a priority. And, of course, most of all, that they will come to the Lord and be together with him for eternity. So it doesn't matter if you don't remember their names, but just please bear this elderly couple up. Thank you. So now I'll tell you why I was in Canada. Um, since 2007, I've been involved with the Lausanne Consultation on Jewish Evangelism, which is part of the Billy Graham Lausanne movement, which he started in the 70s. Um, uh, this one started in 1980, and it's about the most active subsection. And I've been to every conference there every two years. Every four years, it's an international one, 
and the two intervening years, it's um, local, well, not local, it's regional, and I'm part of Europe and Israel region. And over the years, I've been to Hungary and the Ukraine and Jerusalem and all over the place, and now Toronto. Um, and it was a, a wonderful conference. Um, I was asked to lead the early morning prayer from 7 to 7.45 every day, which was a, a great privilege. And there were over 200 delegates from around the world, most of them Jewish believers in Jesus and leaders, many of them leaders of missions. And um, they came from 16 countries in uh, all six continents. And I think it was the best one yet. It, it was noticeably much more ethnic. There were people of all colors there and all ages, um, much younger ones and people with babies and children as well. Really exciting. And we were deliberately um, put round tables of 10 uh, where we had to sit during the main conference speaking and also to study Colossians together and talk things over. And just to give you an idea, on my table, it was actually led by a 27-year-old Danish girl. It was absolutely lovely. Um, and actually, just this week, I was reading that uh, Denmark actually managed to save all but 51 of its Jewish population in, in the Holocaust in the Second World War. They all pulled together from King Christian X to the lowliest fishermen to spirit them away. Um, and maybe this is the legacy. There was a large contingency of young Danish um, Christians. Um, so she led it, and there was also a, a Chinese young woman who'd been brought up in Japan but was currently living in Toronto, a Japanese pastor, a Korean pastor, um, an American pastor, Jewish, who has a congregation in Israel, and an Iranian background Jewish pastor, who was my former colleague when I was a missionary with Christian Witness to Israel, who also has a big congregation in Israel, and actually the first purpose-built modern church. Um, and there was a the couple that call themselves a rabbi and his wife, but they're actually um, Jewish believers pastoring a church in the States. So you can see how varied we were. Um, at the time, it was the anniversary of the end of the war in the Pacific, and there's still a lot of bitterness against Japan in that area. And yet, there were all, you know, these three people from around there, and, and we did a lot of praying and holding hands, and it's just so wonderful that we're all one family in the Lord. But something that I was hearing from the conference, and I've heard for some few years now, is that God is doing a new work amongst ultra-Orthodox Jewish people, which is, um, you know, only he can do because they're shut away in ghettos, really, worldwide, deliberately. They just don't um, belong in this era. They belonged two or three centuries ago. Um and I'll just say a little bit about um, what they're like so that you can appreciate the difficulties and the difficulties of standing up for the Lord there. Um, they're the fastest growing branch of Judaism because they have huge families, 12 or 15 children is quite normal, um, partly to obey the command to go forth and multiply, but also to, <laughs> to deliberately replace the 6 million that died in the Holocaust. And um, 
they actually, the little boys from age three, they go into yeshivas, which are kind of religious schools. And I'd love to tell you they were studying scripture, but they're not. They're studying the Talmud, which was finished about 300 years after Jesus. And it all started back in the Babylonian exile, when, of course, they were separated from the temple while it was destroyed, couldn't have a sacrificial system, had to adapt to living in a pagan culture. And that's when the rabbinic system started and synagogues, which, like the word church, just means a gathering of people. Um, but it all went too far, really, how they adapted. And um, Jesus had strong words for them, as we know, saying they were obeying the traditions of men and, and not of God. And they've gone 2,000 years further in the wrong direction. And um, the Talmud is... Oh, about 22 volumes of books, and it's all about what started with these ancient Jewish sages in Babylon, um, what they said, how you could live as a Jew, uh, and then what later rabbis said. And it's kind of like a legal system, you know, how you have laws, and then uh, you, somebody sets a precedent, and then everybody follows that until someone manages to set a new one. Um, just to give you an example of, of the, the kind of things they do these days, um, in London, and it happens in other big places where there's a, a very ultra-Orthodox community, they've made what they call an aruv. Um, they string a wire, some, I don't know how they get away with it, but over a vast area, it's actually sort of bounded by the M25 on the north, and around a big area, around the ultra-Orthodox area. And, the, and they call it in, like inside a house, because it's got this wire around. Therefore, on the Sabbath, they can go where they want, carry what they want, do what they want, because they're technically inside a house. Do you see what I mean, how things are, you know, t twisted, really? In many ways, they try to, it's a good idea um, that they try to do laws to um, ring fence the original laws so you couldn't inadvertently break them like the verse in the Old Testament that talks about do not, um, in the old version, see the kid in its mother's milk. Therefore, milk and meat are entirely separate. Uh, so much so they'll have separate kitchens, a milk kitchen and a meat kitchen, or uh, if they're not quite so ultra-Orthodox, certainly separate fridges and, and separate dishes and, and everything. And, and different branches of Judaism leave a different number of hours between having anything with milk after you've had a meat meal and so on. Um, anyway, going back to the Orthodox. So these little boys grow up and all they do, all their life, is just argue these points of, of Jewish law, really. They don't work. They don't earn a living. Outside Israel, the wives have a more, well, women have a normal education and, and will go out and, you know, earn a crust for the family. But they're usually very poor because there is a lot of them jammed in a small area, living in very poor circumstances. In Israel, um, the women don't go out to work. They stay within that community, but they're on the social and they get um, more money for actually contributing nothing to society than the um, people do in the Israeli Defense Force on the front line. So they are resented. Um, and also these yeshivas, these religious schools, deliberately get the young men into debt 
Uh, I mean, they're that poor that, um, you know, they perhaps need medicine for the family or something like that, and they lend it to them, and they run up huge debts, which makes it very difficult for them to come out. Um, it's not directly to do with church's ministry among Jewish people, but it's another organization, sort of a sister one, that I do support in prayer and sometimes finance that helps them come out, particularly in Israel. We know there are a lot of secret believers in these communities worldwide. This is what we were hearing at the conference. It's everywhere, just really quite new the last few years. And Jesus is appearing to them, as he does to Muslims, in dreams and visions, and they know who he is. Um, but it's a huge cost if they do come out, and it's usually the man, although not always. Um, usually the wife doesn't want to know. They're rejected by their wife, their family, their community. The funeral's held for them. They'll be as good as dead. Um, and in Israel, particularly, the very ultra-Orthodox will actually um, try and track them down. And, and use violence on them to try and kidnap them, and they do take them back, or stone them even. So there are safe houses where they can go, and um, they obviously discipled in the Lord and baptized and, and grow in the knowledge of the real scriptures, but they also have to learn life skills, how to live in the modern world. Um, and then uh, people contribute to pay off their debts because they couldn't possibly and then they have to learn some way of earning a living. Very often they go into computers, although they've had nothing to do with them previously, but they soon pick it up. And the latest one, I had an email just this week, he is going to be training to be a chef. And so this is for several years they looked after until they can be independent. Um, CMJ, my organization, we do um, do what we can in this country. And... Um, Jonathan, it's not his real name, is our guy in Manchester. And he's actually somehow uh, made contact with um, some ultra-Orthodox young men from these yeshivas who actually come out once a week and study the scriptures with him. And he reckons that a couple of them are really close to making a commitment, um, but at, it'll be a great cost. Because um, CMJ is based on three E's, which is evangelism, primarily to Jewish people, but also to anyone who doesn't know the Lord. Um, educating the church, which is my main role. And uh, most of the church does need educating. Over 80% of uh, churches that my colleague approaches first off, you know, cold call as it were, uh, and mentions that I should speak about Israel or um, the Jewish roots of the faith or something, they don't want to know. Some even put the phone down. She says, well, it's not very Christian, is it? Anti-Semitism's hugely on the rise, but sadly in the church too. People say, oh, well, we're pro-Palestinian. And I said, well, we're not anti. God is pro-everybody. Um, and the other E is encouraging you Jewish believers in Jesus. And this is, you can see what a lot of encouraging they do need. Um, also, we're seeing in Israel um, these ultra-Orthodox young men coming into our centers. I don't know, I can't remember quite how much I said last time, but we have three or four main centers in the land. One's Christchurch in Jerusalem, which some of you may have been to and stayed at the guest house there. 
And um, just the last few years, um, actually, some of these, again, ultra-Orthodox young men are creeping in through the coffee shop and asking serious questions about Jesus. So this is a really new thing. Um, while I'm on sort of subject of Christchurch, uh, and in a minute we'll see uh, a little video, um, there are a huge number of people that come through their doors, both Arab and Jewish. It's well known in Jerusalem. Uh, apparently, um, back in the spring, or no, summer really, they have a festival of light in Jerusalem for four year, uh, four days, and they, you know, put projections on the city walls and so on. And people flood into Christchurch because they're doing their own one onto the walls of the church. And in four days of that festival, they had 4,000 people through. And of course, they can meet Jewish believers and they can ask questions, they can take literature. And apparently, over the average year, they have 60,000 people through, either to stay or the coffee shop or just passing it. Yes, curious and so on. Particularly Christmas uh, and these special occasions and the uh, English Spring Fair, which I'm sure I spoke about last year, which um, typical English fair that's held there in the spring that people love to come to. Um, but I think it's time to just show the, the video. Now, last time I was here, I showed the first one. And it was a conference that um, happened in 2012, and it was the first time in history that Israeli Jewish believers in Jesus had met with Muslim background um, Christians from all the surrounding countries in North Africa and um, the uh, Palestinian territories, authorities, and so on. Um, and people, I think you enjoyed it. I know, but I can show it in churches that aren't very sure, and they see the love between the, the, the Jewish people and the Arab people, and it's unmistakable. It melts their hearts. Well, this is the second one. This happened in 2014, and it's ongoing. Every even year, there's a big international conference. Um, the odd years, like this year, there are regional ones. Um, but I think it's self-explanatory. Just one thing I like to mention. Um, towards the end, there's a, a violinist playing, and at one point you see an Israeli soldier standing behind praying. And I just think his just face is just reflecting Jesus. So I hope you catch a glimpse of that. Thank you. Just inside the Jaffa Gate of the old city of Jerusalem is Christ Church, the Jerusalem headquarters of CMJ, the church's ministry among the Jewish people. Christ Church, which is a 205-year-old Anglican mission, counting William Wilberforce as among its founders, is the oldest Protestant building in the Middle East and is serving once again as host for the second at the Crossroads Conference. It is part of a largely untold story of how Muslim background followers of Jesus from around the Middle East and North Africa are forging close bonds with Messianic Jews, a growing worldwide movement of Jews who believe Yeshua, Jesus, is their Messiah. Christ Church Rector David Pelegi believes this conference will help present a clearer picture of what God is doing in the Middle East, so often blurred by a constant focus on conflict. Well, as I summed up on the first evening, I hope people will think biblically and act regionally. We've invited former Muslims from the East, 
countries from North Africa to meet their Messianic brothers and sisters. But now we are experiencing those things that Abraham was so curious about. This is the, uh, the cross-section, the spiritual cross-section of what's going on in the region. And I need to know, I need to kind of put my finger on the, on the, on the heartbeat of what's happening, what the Lord's doing in the Middle East. I see God connecting the dots. And for me, it's exciting to see how all this fits. And I can find the big picture emerging out of the book of Isaiah. I think the message of Isaiah 19 is really at its foundation, the message of reconciliation. It's nations that we don't see as being at peace, becoming at peace with one another, and God using that to affect the world. We want to move Christians from beyond just a view of life here in the Middle East that is survivalist in mode, that just keeps them in their nationalistic church mentalities and sees the Middle East as a region, gives them a kingdom perspective, calls them to take risks that help them to walk beyond just surviving and going day to day, but as well has them reaching out to the unreached, taking risks just as Abraham did when he left his home, his family, everything that he knew and came to the land of Israel. The Crossroads Initiative has taken inspiration from a biblical passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 19, which speaks of a highway of blessing from Egypt to Assyria, which includes the Arab Middle East, Iraq, northwestern Iran, southeastern Turkey, part of Armenia, Cyprus, and Israel. Delegates have come to Jerusalem, some for the very first time, in response to this prophetic passage of scripture. We want folks uh, to take the message of Isaiah 19, which is a message of reconciliation. It is a, a message about God's kingdom to cross those ethnic boundaries, to uh, put politics aside, and to work together to bring blessing uh, to our very troubled part of the world. What's unique about the Crossroads Conference is that we have Arabs from the West Bank, Israel proper, Messianic Jews, meeting former Muslims from Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Kurdistan, Egypt, North Africa. This is unique. Rather than listening to those who ask us the question of is Isaac more important or is Ismail more important? We should spend time focusing on the reasons to love each other. Without ever forgetting that Isaac and Ishmael were brothers, that they had one father, we should remember that we are from the same family because this fighting, this war is only helping Satan. So I plead with our young people, do not give the devil a foothold. It doesn't matter if you are Muslim or Christian. I think there's a natural tendency to take sides or to have a particular calling and to say, my calling trumps your calling. And uh, that's wrong. God's plan is to bless all people. Uh, we have a particular calling to Jewish people, but we know there's an interdependency of blessing. When Arab and Muslim people come to faith in Yeshua, they will bless the Jewish world. When Jewish people come to understand the meaning of Jesus and the gospel, they will bless the wider world and their neighbors. So it's never either or. That's a temptation we have to resist with every five of our being. God is always much bigger than either or. God is also a God of blessing for all people.
and we need to have that deep in our DNA of mission or we'll end up being sidetracked in unhelpful places. The devil is the devil. He always uh, desires that we are divided in all our attempts. So although we do uh, manage to accomplish something for the kingdom of God, in the end, we are not able to sustain what God has started because we do not have the fuller picture. This time around, I am glad that I have an opportunity to share with my friends and family here in Jerusalem who are keen to understand God's heart for Isaiah 19. In the country where we serve and in the culture that we serve in, there is nothing that's seen as more difficult by the people than to reconcile two disagreeing parties, whether it's individuals or societies or villages or uh, states. And there is no commandment of Jesus that is seen as more appealing, but at the same time more out of reach than the command to love your enemies, the command to pray for those who persecute you. Every time you tell this to a Muslim person, a person in the culture that we're in, they will say that it's appealing, that it's a good thing, that the world would be a better place if everyone did this, and they will also say that it's impossible to really experience it. So for us to come here, and to come here with people that we serve with, and with people that we minister to, and for them to see this happening, people who have been warring with each other, either in their spirits or in their thoughts or physically and practically at war and see them at peace because of the power of Jesus, it shows that the Holy Spirit's work is true and real. We have a shared destiny. In each one of their nations, whether it be Egypt or any of those nations mentioned in Isaiah 19, that constituted ancient Assyria, I think that's nine Middle Eastern nations today. We have a shared destiny and there it is in Isaiah 19. And I just would like to say to each one of them, Come and walk in it with us. And don't allow political things, don't allow what the world dictates in its, in its own moral systems to get in the way of that because this is our highest calling, to step into the national destinies that God has for us. We've been here together praying, worshiping, hearing testimonies. And as we've been together, people have remarked, we've never seen anything like this. It's a taste of heaven on earth for us. And it speaks to us of something that would be almost saying what Isaiah said in the beginning of Isaiah 19, in that day. And would it be in that day, be in our day? Um, I'll share with you just a little bit um, more about things that are happening in Israel. Um, while we're still in Jerusalem, uh, there's the Anglican International School in Jerusalem, which a friend of mine, my age, um, was called out of retirement uh, as a head teacher after six years. And I was the first to know about three and a half years ago, and, and she said, they've asked me if I will take over temporarily, she thought, the leadership at this school. And she said, I've told the Lord I am definitely not doing it. <laughs> well, she is. She's there in her fourth year now, and I think that she will stay for the five years that you can get a visa for. Um, and it's an amazing school with about 360 pupils taught in English, and um, they come from 45 different nations because they have all the diplomatic children and all different religions and none. Very, very mixed. And yet it's so Christian from the 7 o'clock um, prayer meetings every morning with all the believing teachers, be they Jewish or Christian, uh, right through the whole ethos of the school. And when there's been trouble, war and intifadas in the past, um, the parents that are actually on opposite sides have really pulled together. And in fact, all the uh, four CMJ centers have received people in those occasions in need, 
whatever their background, whether they're Jewish, Muslim, Christian, atheist, and they sometimes live together for about three months and come away with a very different idea that enemies are just people. Um, and some people have been saved at these times as well. Um, then moving on to Better Manual in Jaffa, uh, on the edge of Tel Aviv. And while I think of it, do look at the, the banners. They tell the history of CMJ in brief from two, 1809 to 2009. Um, and there we have um, an old building which used to belong to Peter Ustinov, the actor's grandfather, who was a Russian Jew, and it was palatial in its day. Um, then this whole area became very run down, including our building, sadly, because it would cost an awful lot to really um, get it up to scratch as it should be. And it's a guest house as well as, as a, a center for a number of congregations that, that worship there. Um, but uh, now it's a very up-and-coming area with a lot of new high-rise and all the rest of it. And the Tel Aviv Council are not going to allow it to continue being a bit of an eyesore amongst all this. Um, so it's, a, you know, we just don't have the funds. We actually begin to have them, but it's up to the Lord. And we particularly want to keep it going for a number of reasons, partly because um, it is so historic and um, Better Manual and also Christchurch and the Anglican International School are designated as heritage centers, which the Israeli government encourages Israelis to visit. And actually, hundreds of teachers are encouraged to go on special weekends to this one in Tel Aviv, which is amazing. And again, they hear the gospel and they meet Jewish believers and all the rest of it. Um, but another reason is that they have a tremendous outreach among young secular Israelis, particularly that center. Uh, and in the last 10 years in Israel, the sort of two ends of the spectrum that are particularly turning to the Lord are the young secular Israelis who are confident in their Israeli identity. They wouldn't call themselves Jewish, they say they're Israeli, and are really um, beginning to think about whether Jesus could have been the Messiah, and quite a lot are coming to know him. And at the other end of the spectrum are the very elderly Holocaust survivors in Israel, um, and there's a lot of outreach to them by um, us and, and other organizations and messianic congregations because they're often very poor. They came from Eastern Europe and Russia, and they struggle in the winter to have heat and food and medicine, and therefore they give them good hot meals and blankets and heaters and the gospel. And a lot of them are coming to know the Lord just in the nick of time. Um, but going back to Better Manual, yes, um, they are seeing quite a lot of teenagers come to the Lord, being baptized, prepared for their army service, because it's a very difficult time being in the army. The boys go in for three years, the girls for two. And you'll be sad to hear that um, the girls offered three free abortions in those two years. So it's a very secular society. But... You know, our brothers and sisters in the IDF are living so differently, it's coming to the attention of commanding officers, and they've been given swift promotion because of their integrity. And if the Lord doesn't return soon, but I think he will, um, they will be leaders of the future, so do pray for them. Every time you hear of trouble, see it in the news, um, we have a lot of brothers and sisters on the front line. 
But I'll tell you a little story about this better manual. It's run by Pedro, who's a, a Brazilian Jewish believer in Jesus. He and his family have run it for over 20 years. And for the last nine years, they've been trying to get a permanent business license because it is a, a guest house. Uh, and, and they haven't been able to. So he's been toing and froing every month to the, the council offices um, to get uh, fire regulation certificates and, and temporary license and so on. And one of the men he's come across is Asaf, who's an orthodox, not ultra-orthodox, because he wouldn't be working, but a, a pretty orthodox Jewish man who's the chief fire officer. And over the nine years, they formed a really good relationship. And last year, Pedro was off to see Asaf again, and he was in with him two hours. And people were knocking on the door saying, you know, what's the delay? There's a queue out here. And Asaf said, go away, I'm having a very interesting conversation. And it turned out that he was asking questions about Jesus for an hour and a half, and there was only half an hour on the fire regs. So that was wonderful. Well, this spring, um, they have actually been granted their permanent license, so um, Pedro won't be toing and froing so often. But um, knowing it might have been one of the last times, um, when he met Asaf in the spring, Asaf actually asked him for a New Testament. And normally an Orthodox Jew would not go near one or touch one or anything. So um, Pedro gave him his own copy so that that, you know, you'd be forced to meet with him and give it back and talk about it. I'm waiting to hear any day, you know, what the outcome is. But yes, if you think of it, Asaph, you know, who wrote a lot of Psalms in the, in the Bible, it might remind you to pray for this man. Um, and then just moving up to, to Galilee, I probably mentioned Bet Bruchah, which means house of prayer or house of blessing before a lovely modern Christian retreat centre at Migdal, where Mary Magdalene came from. And her valley, uh, her village was at lake level, it's being excavated, but the more modern village is high up. So this lovely place and garden overlooks the whole of Lake Galilee. I've stayed there a number of times. Um, but an interesting phenomenon has been occurred, occurring in the last few years, in that Jewish people from Reform and Liberal synagogues, the more orthodox wouldn't, but they've been having what, what we would call retreats. They don't, but five days or a week's holiday there, um, where everywhere there's things about Jesus and texts and so on. So it's an extraordinary place for them to choose to go. And in the garden, they've erected um, a Bedouin tent for prayer and worship because there was nowhere really suitable for the Christians that go there. And these Jewish people are sort of coming in and listening and saying that they can really sense a, a peace and something different. So again, God is bringing people in. So really exciting. Um, and then, of course, in this country, I, I'm sure I did mention it before, but I'll say it again. Uh, apart from Jonathan, who works in Manchester, as I said, with the, the ultra-Orthodox particularly, we have Tanya, it's not her real name either, in London, who is at the other end of the spectrum, and um, she organises um, a lovely stall with CWI, which was my former mission, and other agencies, uh, to go into alternative spirituality or New Age festivals. And they have two enormous ones in London, one in the spring and one in the autumn. 
And it's very expensive to have a stand there. Sometimes we're the only Christian stand, sometimes there's one other, but very well worthwhile doing. Because um, it's said that over 20% of New Agers are Jewish. They're very attracted to the sort of pick-and-mix spirituality. And, um, well, a local reform rabbi, I don't think I've said this last time, that I knew some years ago, and actually interviewed when I was at Bible college, and he signed all this off to be true, what he believed or didn't believe. He said, for one thing, he didn't know if Abraham had existed or not, and it didn't matter either way. He said he didn't believe the Israelites were ever in Egypt, therefore they never came out. And yet the Exodus is a very spiritual experience. Um, he doesn't believe in God, and that is quite normal, even for a rabbi, a reform or liberal rabbi, not to believe in God. Um, they really sort of keep however many laws they want to, each individual, just to keep their ethnic identity. Their great fear is of, of being assimilated, of losing that ethnic identity. Um, and even more so if they became a Christian, um, that's why they prefer to be called Jewish believers in Jesus. Um, and it is amazing, it's a miracle that God has preserved the Jewish people all these many, many centuries, really, from the, the original exile, um, to, you know, the Assyrian exile before they went to Babylon, and they were just scattered around the world, which is why we've got Indian, you know, you know, Asian Jewish people and Chinese Jewish people and, um, black Ethiopian Jewish people because of, you know, they are the descendants. And some of them, actually, some of the African ones, remember the original biblical things more than the modern Jewish people. They still do sacrifices. It's usually a chicken, but at least they're still doing a blood sacrifice. Um, but anyway, um, oh, lost the track there. Yes, these, these, uh, this rabbi, um, he also said um, they, they very much have made God in their own image. Uh, and he says, you know, Moses, Moses, not God, devised some very good laws, sort of similar in some ways to the laws of the, the nations around, and yet much better, much fairer, which we know they are. Um, and then he said, uh, obviously he doesn't believe in God, so he doesn't believe in an afterlife. But he said, oh, if I woke up there, I'd be very pleased. And I thought, no, you wouldn't. But I couldn't exactly say at the time. And he doesn't obviously believe in healing because there's no God. He said uh, when they say a prayer for the sick, which is part of their liturgy, um, he reckons it's answered when someone goes to visit. So uh, you can see what, you know, it's very all very odd. And even the local Orthodox rabbi um, has got some very strange ideas. They're all infected by Kabbalah. You know, I'm sure you've heard about it Um with Madonna, you know, she's gone into all this. And it's a cult. It's really, really bad. And I hadn't realized how early it started, not long after Jesus, with a rabbi that had sort of had some sort of revelation. But it's really satanic. And it's led them tremendously astray and off on all sorts of funny tangents. Um, but anyway, they, they come to this New Age thing. And uh, the, the stool says, um, the Jesus experience. And underneath it says, free prayer in the name of Jesus. 
Uh, everything else you have to pay for, all this awful sort of tarot card readings and black magic and goodness knows what else that's on offer. And yet people will queue for hours for prayer in the name of Jesus. And even people from the stalls that we meet every year um, will come back. And there's some amazing things happen. Um, people from London, because it's in London, who are very experienced in that dark spiritual environment. They come from various churches and various missions to, to, to be the team there. And there are tables behind where they can sit with the individuals and, and talk with them and pray with them and so on. And um, they've had miraculous healings and deliverance. And on an average um, few days, they'll have about, last time it was 17 people made a commitment to the Lord. They've come back again and again. Um, there's a, last time there was a young Hindu girl, quite a number of Jewish, secular Jewish people, um, a Muslim, um, a Catholic, lapsed Catholic, an atheist, all sorts. And if, if you come to the book table after, which I hope you do, you'll see something on the stand behind, which was from a Christian newspaper. It's an article about it with a picture of it. And on the right is a picture of um, a young woman being baptized who was saved through it. She's actually Muslim, but doesn't matter. She's uh, a part of our family now. And um, not only were there 17 commitments, and they'll all be followed up, and they'll be discipled, and our Tanya and others will have one-to-ones, and they'll be helped into suitable congregations. But also, um, there were about 30 to 40 others who weren't ready yet, but were willing to look into it further, and they will all be followed up. So it's extremely fruitful ministry, and we're very blessed to have it. Um, just to finish um, with what else we can offer, um, actually I had another banner, but it broke too much overuse <laughs> two days ago. Um, and it t tells about the annual conferences, um, CCMJ conferences, which are now always held at Swanwick in Derbyshire for the good reason that we have so many young people, we can't accommodate them at Highley because, you know, safeguarding, they have to be in one particular area. Um, and the last conference this July was, I think, one of the best yet, um, with n over 90 new people, first-timers to a CMJ conference, a very much more ethnic group as, as the Canadian conference was. Uh, all sort of shades were there, and again, a lot of young people and young families. And we had over 40 teenagers. There are two streams of, of good teaching and a lot of fun held for them, for the younger teens and the older teens, um, and very, very cheap. Uh, so that, to encourage them to come. Um, yes, over 40 teenagers, and that's not counting children, and in fact, there was a crash for the little ones as well. Um, next year, we're having a, um, a very eminent um, speaker you may have heard of, Amir Tsvati. But, um, I don't have time to listen to much YouTube, but I have a lot of friends that do. And he puts out once or twice a week... Um, all about the political situation in the Middle East from a biblical, prophetic perspective and so on. He is quite well known and well worth hearing, and he is the main speaker. And they're expecting a lot of people, maybe a thousand. So, um, sort of, I don't know, three to four hundred can stay on site, first come, first served, and other people will have to be in B and come in daily. So, if you're at all interested, there are some cards 
uh, on the table, you know, take one, look at the website and, um, and come. Um, we also do the Bible Comes to Life exhibition um, around this country and Ireland as well, um, which is great. It was, um, some people remember it from decades ago and then it fizzled and now it's been back about 10 years better than ever. And uh, it uh, incorporates a, a huge model of the temple area in Jesus' day, a full-size Ark of the Covenant that's been recently gilded. It looks quite magnificent. Um, lots of artifacts and really genuine ancient costumes. We hadn't realized how valuable they were till recently. And the team dress up. They reenact Bible stories. Um, and they get hundreds and hundreds of school children through because uh, it's part of the curriculum. And interestingly, people from reform and liberal synagogues who come to hear their own story. And, um, yeah, they also put up a little Bedouin tent and they can do the taste and smells of Israel, the food and, and so on. So, um, churches get together, usually in a town and one hosts it. Um, but I can highly recommend that, so if <laughs> you think about that one. There's an organization um, also for pastors and that, um, that, that they can join. And I think that's about, I've said enough. And um, thank you very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. To find out more about our church, visit www.oakdalechristiancentre.org.